1: Welcome to Mind Rolling, and I'm one of your hosts, Raghu Marcus. And I'm the other, David Silver, and I welcome you also. We're going to talk this week about something very dear to both of us. Uh, we've worked together, I think we've mentioned this in previous podcasts, uh, in the music area over many years and uh, David has been closely associated with some fabulous projects which uh, I'm going to have you mention a couple of them and uh, but but here is our theme of this particular podcast which is all about music as a transformational ally it's We talked, I think, David, before I talked about my initial experience. You know, the world was so oppressive, and it was only till Dylan came along that he could voice that oppression. And uh, boy, that, that saved me, you know, at 16 or 17 years old or whatever it was. And then I think I also talked about John Coltrane being at one of his concerts and for the first time having an out-of-body kind of experience. I mean an experience that I had no idea what I was going through. So uh,
2: speak to that a little bit, Dave. Well, you know, I think many people listening hopefully have had parallel experiences if they're of our age uh, and different kinds of process of listening to music and being transformed by it if they're not of our age. I also was woken up by music, by jazz. Um, And my brother, who was 10 years older than me, uh, turned me on to bebop music, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, Jerry Mulligan, in the late 50s when I was still very young. And also for me, Coltrane, because he took that music and just expanded it and made it infinitely more flexible and exploratory, I saw him live with Eric Dolphy and McCoy Tyner and Elvin Jones mm. at the Brighton Dome in Sussex in England where I grew up. And um, my brother made sure that we were in the front row because he was fanatical about Coltrane, and I didn't really quite understand that at the age of 12. And um, after that concert, I was a changed lad because mm. <laughs> uh, Coltrane was just – it's impossible to describe the live experience except by listening to the records. He just took that bebop freedom – and made another level. Took it to another level of, of of incredible
1: invention. Well, he was such a spiritual character. I mean, obviously, and and uh, his expression was so um, connected internally. I mean, he was searching for something, and he was able to express that search, that internal search in ways, of course, that very, very few artists, you know, have done in the past. And if we're going to bring in um, artists of this nature, I would have to also include uh, Ali Akbar Khan, the great Indian maestro, who at one point uh, Yehudi Menyun called the greatest living um, musician in the world. Uh, He died only a couple of years ago. Now, these may be... uh, You know, a little bit of new names to some people and artists that, uh, in terms of Ali Akbar Khan, um, people may not have heard and and we highly would, both of us, uh, recommend. I ended up working with him uh, in the uh, record label that uh, both David and I worked on together, uh, Triloka Records, and uh, he, I would say that was the pinnacle of any kind of experience I had working with, with somebody like this who was a pure genius. And uh, uh, and certainly the emblem for what we are talking about, which is what are the allies in yeah. terms of music? Yeah. What are those allies? How do they how do they work upon
2: us to allow that transformation to take place? It's a very wide definition because you can go all the way from pure entertainment. Because I remember when I was very young. Uh, My sister, my older sister and older brother and father and mother all listened to Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. Mm. And I loved it. I thought it was liberating actually at that time because it was American and I was living in England, which was not, which didn't have, you know, any musicians of that caliber at the time. Mm. And we never thought it would have. So in the late 50s, that was a major part of my education and my also feeling that life was more than just, you know, the routine, uh, the 50s routine. And it wasn't until the mid-60s, I think, uh, that that turned into something much bigger and much more internalized, despite the enormous popularity of the 60s music. I found it to be an inner experience, and that was my first real real chance of using music and it using me, as as you call it, Raghu, an ally. Um, I was just reading the, an interview with Bob Dylan in Rolling Stone, and he said something funny. He said that... The old and the new come together in, in a magical way. You don't know when the old ends and when the new begins. But his definition was the 50s went on until about 1964 or 65. And he said that's when the 60s started. Mm-hmm. And um, coming from him, uh, I think that's sort of gospel. Because even though Dylan is, is uh, a bit of a curmudgeon and denies that he had any, anything to do with what people think of as the 60s, for the rest of us who weren't Bob Dylan, he had everything to do with it. And um, for me, uh, he was the first. To call him a pop star is really wrong. He became enormously popular. But one time, many years ago, I talked to his brother, David Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> yeah, I had a, a little friendship with David. And he told me, t- to my surprise, that Dylan did not sell records in the 60s, that it was paltry the number of records he mm. sold. If he sold 100,000, he was thrilled. That, that, that people weren't buying Dylan in huge amounts because it took a long time before the pop-buying public accepted him as, a, as, a, you know, as an entertainer, if you like, when he started playing electric music. When he started playing electric music, I was just totally enthralled and felt that there was something out there that millions of other people were aware of that corresponded to a feeling inside my heart and my mind, which was a mixture of rebellion liberation, mm. confusion, chaos, and order. Strange mix, strange cocktail. Mm. But, so that was Dylan. And that was probably mine, and I think maybe your, yours too, Raga, the first sort of at least pop person who had that effect, who wasn't just, you know, an entertainer that mm. made you laugh and then you felt slightly better and you went home and listened to a record. Yeah. No. Or, or
1: just a, a melody that just bounced around in your head, a pop right. melody. No, he certainly was the perfect intersection uh, between um, culture and and something inside that aspired to jump out of us, you know, to become something different than what it was that we were being preached to by the culture. So he certainly was. And I have to... Uh, I mean, you need to talk about... I probably... Another, the other, what I would call, emblem of, the, of what it is that we're talking about, that he embodied the, the combination of, of what was going on in the culture but had such a spiritual uh, effect on people, Bob Marley. And, uh, and mm-hmm. David, you've got, of course, uh, we must hear, uh, you know, uh, David worked with Bob. Over uh, some some several years or more, I'm not even sure, but uh, spent a lot of time with Bob. Tell us a little bit well, about Bob.
2: Uh, it was four years. Uh, I, I, I first met Bob in December of 1975, I guess, and um, was with uh, with him the night or the day before he collapsed in Central Park when he used to when he when he came to New York, he always used to take a run. A certain part of, of Central Park and, and the the one he did the day after I videotaped him In, 80, in 1980 I think it was August 1980 Was the day he collapsed mm. So I, I think I'm right in saying that Me and my crew A team of video videographers Were the last people to shoot Bob Marley um, And it's interesting because He was very sprightly and alive And seemed incredibly healthy on that day And did a lot of songs for us But I first met him uh, because I got involved in reggae music. Uh, I was a filmmaker and um, was fascinated by reggae music. Uh, And like most people got into it, it was because of the film Harder They Come with Jimmy Cliff, which came out in mid-70s. And um, became so infatuated with the the form because it wasn't just incredible dance music and everything and lively, beautiful, amazing music. It was also deeply spiritual Hmm. because the true Rastafarian. Ethos behind reggae music was based upon very devotional uh, behavior. In fact, reggae music comes from a thing called a groundation. The groundation was a a, a very religious ritual uh, where um, uh, drums were played, mainly drums, and um, people sang. And out of that sprung the true reggae music of the of the mid seventies. I then got the money together to shoot Peter Tosh at the Beacon theater in new york peter tosh is one of the whalers yeah. the original whalers were bob marley peter tosh and bunny whaler and uh, we did it and we it was maybe the first multi-camera shoot of a reggae concert and it was delightful and i became very friendly with peter but very soon after that don taylor who was marley's manager called me and said man what you shooting peter for man <laughs> you should shoot <laughs> you bob you know bob him the tommy the gong man you know and i <laughs> later learned that that meant he was kind of the king Bob never thought of himself as a king or a star or anything. He only saw himself as a messenger, Hmm. a messenger of Jah. And I met him, I tried to work this out, but probably between 20 and 30 times. Videotaped him at least 10 times.
1: Well, you have to, I have to jump on this because uh, I have seen this footage. Not a lot of people have seen this footage. David did some footage of him in a hotel room one day uh, where he played – What was the song he
2: played? He did uh, Coming in from the Cold and Redemption
1: Song. Redemption Song, which is one of the most incredible spiritual songs um, one has ever heard. And he did it over and over and over. I'll never forget. And every time he did it, it went into another level of... You know, of, of journeying inside I mean it was absolutely incredible Just tell, tell us about well, that moment uh, What what did that feel like Being would, in the room with that vibration
2: Well you know People have said this before But you know when you're doing a job You're doing a job And it's a job And you don't get too You know blown away by it mm. You can't do it I would worked with Bob a lot by that time So I knew him and the whalers. But that was just him alone We got to the Essex House Hotel Which is on Central Park South A very nice hotel Where he tended to stay And I walked in the room with my crew, and there were about 15 or 20 Rastas in there who were close friends of Bob, and I knew them. And the atmosphere was incredibly friendly and warm, and they cooked some Ital food, which is vegetarian Jamaican Mm -hmm. food for Mm -hmm. us, which we ate, and we're on it to eat. And then I said to Bob, what do you want to sing? And he said, well, what do you want us to sing? And I said, well, you know, Redemption song. And he said, give me another one. And my camera operator, Freddie, said – Coming In From The Cold is my favorite song mm. of yours. So he did those two. He did come in from, Coming In From The Cold 11 times mm. and redemption song actually 10 times. And as Raghu put it it, it, it was better every time. Funny thing was that after each one, he would turn to me and say, uh, so, what do you think? I said, it's <laughs> great. You know what I'm going to say to Bob Marley. It was mediocre. <laughs> I did think that it was great. And he'd look at me and smile and say, can be better. Mm. And so we did that ten times, and it was just a—he didn't have a guitar. Even I sent someone out, and we, we there was rented. a Nashville
1: Nashville steel. That no, he it was, no, it, no, it was
2: it was an Epiphone, and it, uh-huh. it, it was an acoustic Epiphone, a rather mm. cheap one, and we rented it from a local guitar store. Oh, really? And they didn't want to do it, but it, when when I said to them, "Well, it's for Bob Marley," he didn't believe me at first, and then we called Bob. Um, so we got it and we brought it in, and he did it. He was a master because he just he could just play that thing. Like, he'd, you know, like Segovia. He was yeah, just an was, amazing guitar It was player. riveting, riveting. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. Now, before that, um, I'd spent a lot of time in Jamaica with Bob. And um, we can get into that a little later. I don't want to talk about this too much at this point because there's much, much, much as three podcasts about this. But getting used to him was the key to working with him because he wasn't, a, you know, a touchy-feely kind of man. Uh, he was a lovely, warm, gentle soul. But I remember my friend Earl Chin, who was the first. He was so gentle. He, that's when he went to the radio
1: station when they wouldn't play his song with a gun and pointed at the guy he, and said, play this song. He had, that,
2: he had that side. Yeah. He had that side. <laughs> but he, he didn't exhibit it with us because we were the first people at that time to spend our own money on shooting him. He was very grateful for that. We thought it was a great honor. But he was very sweet, you know, when we were with him. But one time my friend Earl, who was a disc jockey, a very good one, reggae disc jockey, from uh, Portland County in Jamaica, was interviewing him on our show. We did a weekly reggae show at that time on on New York television. And Earl made the mistake of saying to him, Bob, you were just playing with Stevie Wonder and and Mick Jagger was backstage coming to see you. What's it feel like to be a world superstar? And Bob actually got irritated and said, no, man, not a superstar, man, just a messenger. Mm -hmm. And he meant it. It sort of reminded me of his holiness, Dalai Lama, when people ask him questions like that. He says, I'm just a humble monk. Hmm. Yeah. And that's what Bob was like. He was very humble in that way. Yeah. And, and this points out that these uh,
1: people like this. I mean, I put aside his holiness because that's a whole other realm and a whole other podcast, basically. <laughs> but people like Marley, um, they knew that they had um, a place in the culture that was – Strictly as a messenger, and they were going to give—this was going to flow through them, and they were not attached to it. So their egos were way less involved, which is why what they did was transformative for people, you know. um, I'll tell you one funny story about Bob. Now, I never met him, unfortunately, uh, because I worked in radio. Um, I did meet a lot of people, but not him. And, uh, but one day he was playing a concert. I don't know if, if you remember this story, Dave. He was playing a concert in New York. It was a late 70s or maybe six, 76, 7 or something, at Madison Square Garden. And, um, so we decided to go down there. Now we happened to be at the time in a spiritual scene and <laughs> I had not smoked pot maybe in, it must've been a couple of years, a few years, probably the most the longest run I've had, not smoking <laughs> pot, probably. Um but uh so we decided it's Bob Barley. You can't go to garden and you know. So um Actually, my wife at the time said she would drive. She'd be the designated uh, driver. (laughs) And I said, all right, well, here, I happen to have some um, really good Thai bud at the time, (laughs) Thai sticks. If you remember Thai sticks. Oh, God. So she, I said, make some brownies because we're not going to be sitting there smoking this stuff. So she did. Unfortunately, you're just supposed to use the shake when you make this stuff, not the buds. It's like way too strong. So uh, we're all in the car. We hadn't done it before. And she meant the brownies were really good. So we all had like a couple of brownies apiece. We're talking about we were in a van with about eight people sitting in a row at the garden. By the time Marley, there was an act in front of him, I can't remember. Commodores. No no, no, no. It was this guy who played the bass, like, with his fingers. He would finger pick the... Uh, Stanley Clark. Stanley Clark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, there we were after Stanley. <laughs> Stanley went and sat down backstage and Bob came on with the, you know, with those incredibly beautiful, what are they call the eye... I- the eye... I- Three I three, yeah. yeah, and his band, and uh, I heard later that he was smoking the same stuff <laughs> <laughs> they had about a pound of it that they had backstage well, i'll tell you, this whole row of people was like we were on acid, you know, my friend next to me, he, and you 'd have to stand up because you know you couldn't see or anything and <laughs> and he'd say and he looked at me and he said, When do you think this will be over?' <laughs> It was like, you know, on a terrible. Other people were throwing up. I mean, it was a, an insane scene. But at one point, Marley was singing, Is this love? Is this love? Is this love? And the penetration of mm. him being in... He was the message. I mean, he entered into people's hearts in that... In, you know, there was 20,000 people in the garden. They all became one through him. I mean that kind of magic. Where is that magic today, by the way? I mean, Springsteen obviously can create that. Um, you know, he he brings people into that hard place, but what is there a disconnect between what we experience with some of these incredible uh, artists that we've talked about and, um, you know, where that art is now? Is there still a transmittal? Are there still messengers? What do
2: you think? Well, I think, Nowadays, um, the liveliest popular music has got to be rap music um, in terms of its its
1: massiveness. You would include hip-hop, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, right. But, I mean, it's global, you know, as yeah. is reggae still. I, I mean, last time I was in India, I was uh, astonished at the number of images of Bob Marley in Delhi <laughs> on T-shirts, mm, posters, yes, 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 yeah. everywhere. Yeah. But certainly, you know, hip-hop music has taken over the planet, and, and, and it's been adapted in India, in Africa, in Asia, by Native Americans, by Brazilians. You can't see a movie these days that's made in a foreign country without hearing some version of rap. So I think that has social significance. Right. Whether it has deeply spiritual resonance, it's hard for me to discern. And I don't want to, you know, the last thing you want to be is that old fogey who you fought yeah, against right. in 1966 yeah, right. exactly who said that. the yeah. Beatles were rubbish. You know, yeah. So I don't want to be that person. But I, for one, and I'm very open to music. I mean, I, I went to a Lady Gaga concert last year and, <laughs> um, because there was some talk of working with her. So they gave me front row seats to her. Mm, and, uh, really? The, yeah, mm. at the Garden. And uh, I have to say this, that I'd only seen her once before when she played solo piano. At Carnegie Hall with uh, Bono and Edge. Really? And yeah, it was a Hal Wilner concert. Hmm. Uh, it was a benefit. And I went and, and he didn't, Bono did not say who was going to be there. And there were many people like Wayne Wright and uh, great people were playing. And then yeah. he said at the end, We have a special guest and you'll know her. And she came on and I was just astonished. She played solo piano and she sang like Aretha Franklin. Really? She was amazing. She's an amazing, soulful singer. Hmm. But when I saw her at the garden, there were projections 100 feet high and 13-year-old girls screaming through the entire thing. And it just felt to me like some kind of cult. She calls them her monsters, her little monsters. It was hard for me to get into it because there was so much dancing going on on the stage. there's sort of 50 guys dancing in leather suits. Yeah, it's a big and, spectacle. And it wasn't way. for me. It wasn't my cup of tea at all. She's a great singer. Yeah. I, you know, at the risk of alienating anybody under 22, um, I do not see much going on. The last time in, in, in rap music that I remember things of this nature was, was definitely Tupac and Biggie. Mm. Um, they did a number of works together and separately, which were incredibly, uh, powerful. And, you know, I don't know whether that is being reproduced now because most of the major rap and hip hop stars have become magnates like Jay, you know, Jay Z and, yeah. and, and, and everything. And so, but I, I do pay homage to that in the world of pop music. It seems to have gone back to pop.
1: Yeah, right. To well, pure rock and, and roll. Yeah. <clears throat> rock yeah. and roll is not there anymore.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, you see Green Day and they do a great show and they're very powerful and they're definitely a great rock and roll band. But are they Zeppelin? Are they, uh, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, uh, the Dead? No. I mean, yeah. I would say that unreservedly without, you know, putting down Billy Joe Armstrong or anything. He's, he's a fantastic performer. It's something to do with the zeitgeist of the 60s and 70s, Aragu. I, argue. I mm. mean, there was something going on there that was so dimensional involving the war, involving protest, involving psychedelic drugs that, that made music be part of it, a real family part of it. It was mm. like the, the, the elder right. son of the whole movement, you know. Yeah. I don't think that we'll, we'll see anything quite like
1: that. Mm. Well, one, one thing that took place... That you and I were involved with, and we've we've uh, mentioned the world music label, Triloka, that we were very much a part of, um, and we were led into world music. Because I mean, for me, I was, I kind, you know, what you're saying right now about, you know, not feeling it from. I mean, certainly, Springsteen. You would have to say. I mean, to this day, you go to one of his concerts and you get into that heart space. Bono can do it as well, so there still is something of that nature, but these guys are from what seventies or late seventies you know uh, so they're they're a bit of you know throwbacks to that generation, but we were looking for and and I personally was led to this by Ali Akbar Khan and music of the east, and then i you know basically we got into this label we it was sort of there was so much of this pablumish kind of new age music going on at the time <laughs> that it was just awful. And, and we, you know, we wanted an antidote to that and that antidote was discovering incredible music uh, from around the world that had that transformational quality that could become immediately an ally to it. Um, and, uh, and our, our wonderful engineer here, Bruce is going to help us out here and, and, we're going to play this a little bit of this uh, track, which was one of the original tracks uh, that we got going with Triloka.
0: rela laço fama você coloca pele axi aqui motivo que maria I do me know what I'm saying. levs uqo conta ma para lo copele utate kwa mane ngawloanna o io maria to mia me utate kwa mane ngawloanna ye yeah.
1: So this is a a wonderful piece of music uh, from a band called uh, Orchestra Marabenta de Mocambique from Mozambique um and this lead singer whose name i don't recall unfortunately right now this collection was on triloka records called transplanet which was a precursor to the famous Buddha Bar series um that uh, came out uh, some years later um but uh, unfortunately this lead singer he he did die um soon really? after this yeah so uh we we lost uh, somebody who was really great so this is a good example of the kind of music that, even without understanding the words, mm-hmm. that it, uh, that what it is seeps inside your bones, mm-hmm. you know, and and it, it's a circular... I think one of the greatest adjectives you could l- use for what this ally is, is a circular feeling that uh, becomes very trance-like and puts you into a one-pointed... Uh, place where your discursive thought gets uh, eliminated, and music is such a powerful thing. Now, in a future one of these podcasts, because we we'll start talking about chant, which uh, we eventually got into as well with triloka, and uh, that's a whole other subject uh, that uh, that we could spend more than one podcast on.
2: I should I should add here because. Uh, if you look at these trilocal records, most of them, if not all of them, were executive produced by Mr. Mitchell Marcus, who's Raghu, and Mr. K.D. Kegel, who is Christian Das. And uh, these two gentlemen simply, you know, sort of looked at the whole world for music. There were no, you know, preconceptions, African, Indian, Pakistani, uh, Native American, and also, you know, sort of. Um, special versions of indigenous music, right. you know, by Jim Wilson, those kind of people, so that the label, and we don't want to get too self-indulgent here because we're both involved in it, was part of a movement. Uh, Peter Gabriel's real-world uh, label was was mm-hmm. part of it. David Byrne's uh,
1: Luaka Pop, Luwaka, yep. Luwaka Pop yeah, was
2: part of it, and everybody who was involved in it was entranced by how much fantastic music. There was in places that we sometimes hadn't even heard of and certainly hadn't gone to. And and what you just said was sort of put it all together, that it was music, it was entertaining. These were remarkable performers when you saw them, incredibly professional, Mm. incredibly technically adept. But there was something different going on uh, from Western pop music. Mm -hmm. And it was about that one-pointedness, that taking you to a place of stillness in yourself. No matter how energetic the music was, somehow or other it made you still and therefore was what you said at the beginning of this podcast was an ally yeah
1: and i like that word um because that's definitely what uh, this music can be for people and uh you know we should uh, we'll we'll put it up on the on the website i think we'll uh, we'll put a bunch of tracks up there on mindrollingpodcast.com and everybody can take a look and, uh, and try out some of this music and uh, um, really see its, its power. Um, I think it's time now. We have forgotten something extraordinarily important. Ah. We have a sponsor. Yes. And we've we got to talk about it. We have them. a great one.
2: Yeah. Audible.com, uh, the, uh, the primo audiobook Uh, company on the planet, I think. And they are our sponsor. And we should tell you that if you take their 30-day free trial, you get a free book. I did it. And I got a book that I loved. And then I got infected and addicted and started to get tons of stuff. The quality is is very high. Uh, They're a great company. If you go to mindrollingpodcast.com, you can link up You'll see with, the link. You'll see the link, and and please do that because they they very kindly are sponsoring us. Follow the prompts on that website, and you'll learn a lot more about
1: Audible.com. Now, David and I were talking about uh, since we had this particular podcast, which was about transformative power of music. We thought, what are any books out there that that have something? a little bit different than just reading a bio of a musician or a history of music or so on and so forth. And, and we've come up with uh, a couple of books. Uh, uh, Dave's more familiar
2: with them, so I'm going to let him talk about them. Yeah, and they're both available, available on, on audible.com. Uh, well, the first one is Chronicles by none other than Bob Dylan, and it's a delight to read, but Sean Penn's reading of the book is, if anything, even more enthralling. Sean Penn, as you all know, is a a terrific actor and and has done many different roles. But this one, he doesn't play Bob Dylan. He doesn't do that. But his tone, his attitude really sounds right all the way through. And I enjoyed it so much. And I Mm. actually read it and listened to it. The other one is the book Life by Keith Richards. Who needs no introduction whatsoever. The audio the audiobook is is uh, read by Johnny Depp, who also needs no introduction. Johnny Depp, without impersonating Keith as he might have done in the Pirates films, uh, again, the gestalt, the feeling in, in his reading of, of Keith's very honest book is quite remarkable and I, I recommend Mm. Both of these books. We both recommend them. They're not about trance music as such, but they put you in a trance because they take you to that era, that time. When Dylan talks about stealing books from Dave Van Ronk and Keith talks about, oh, yeah, yeah. about uh, Chuck Berry, mm. and there's a marvelous anecdote in there when he's arguing with... He often argued with Chuck Berry, even though he adored him, and he was arguing about who wrote a particular song, and Chuck insisted he wrote it. And... Um, <laughs> Keith said, No, it, it sounds like a piano set of chord sequences, and found out that Chuck's uh, piano player, who's called, I think, Jimmy Johnson, was that his name? I'm not going mm-hmm. to just check on that if you're listening. Yeah. That it was obviously written by a piano player, yeah. and Keith found that out. Keith is a very, uh, incidentally, uh, talking about audible.com, Keith Richards is uh, one of America's leading bibliophiles. Really? And recently gave a lecture at the, um, what? At the uh, uh, very uh, daunting New York Public Library, one of the most uh, amazing buildings in, in the world, and gave a, a lecture about uh, collecting rare books. Which Keith he, can give a lecture. He did, he and knows, apparently He it was, can speak. He can speak, and he spoke about I – I wasn't lucky enough to go, but I read about it in the Times, mm. and it said that the, the, the talk was incredibly mm. informative. He knows a lot about books. Mm. The thing about – something just struck me, transformative trance. Trance is the first syllable of transformative. Mm. And I think that what I want to say here, we're talking about Keith Richards and Bob Dylan. That, doesn't, that seems a long way away from Ali Akbar Khan and, and, and um, music from Madagascar. But I have to say that for me, the, uh, the, the Beatles and the Stones and the Dead and Zeppelin and the Velvets and all of that despite the fact that much of the music was no more than just different pop music. After all, the Beatles took their three-part harmonies from the Shirelles and from American, uh, African-American music from Detroit, usually. Um, they took it from there, and they were singing about, you know, you know I want to hold your hand. That's not exactly trance music. But there was something there, something magic, which put us all in a kind of trance. Yeah. And I think that's where it started for me and for many people, uh, some people who would, I think we, one would find very surprising would say the same thing. The, for those of us that were young in the 60s and now are in our 60s, um, that music did more for us in blowing our mind. Right. Then very later, later, I mean, I wasn't a huge Dead fan. I had to be dragged to a dead concert because I was English, you know, and yeah. I, I liked foppish English bands like, you know, Moody Blues and Procol Harum and the Kinks. I didn't want to see the dead at all. Eventually, in 1970, uh, I went to the Goddard Music Conference and, <laughs> and uh, it was called the Goddard Media Conference. But The dead played and I couldn't believe the experience that we were having together that the audience and the band were truly one. There was no Priscilium yeah. Arch. Yeah. There was no them and us. It was the Grateful Dead and all of you. And I got it. Yeah. I never bought a Grateful Dead record. I didn't particularly like their records, but I went to many of their concerts. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. could be terrible, depending yeah. on what they were taking, or <laughs> how tired they were, but they could be transcendent. And they definitely, amazing, astonishing guitar yeah. player. But I know that I learned a little bit about music using music as trans, a trance tool during those dead concerts. Mm-hmm. I definitely did. Well, I think we have a, a an
1: essential example of what trance music is. And this music, uh, we're going to play a cut now, or part of one, um, comes from uh, North Africa. And uh, and w- the two performers, two artists uh, that are... Uh, it was called Asarouf and Steve Sheehan, a, a very well-known percussionist, uh, f- actually an American who lives in France... And, um, and uh, Bali Otmani, I had to turn around and, and read that because it's not easy, uh, but um, he comes from a, a Toreg tribe and actually all of the, uh, the oral tradition or the musical tradition of his tribe was actually passed through women, which is very unusual. And uh, there was in his family no women, uh, children. So uh, he was given, the he was the torch was passed to to Bali, and he did this record. Uh, so their tradition is so much; it's nothing but a spiritual trance tradition. And uh, talking about an ally, I mean this this uh, we've talked very loosely in, in terms of, of many of these musicians from all of these different worlds. And how that is the common denominator putting you into that particular state. This is uh, transparently that. Uh, So here's a little of uh, Steve Sheehan and Bali Othmani. a small example um, of what we're talking about when we're talking about transformational music as an ally to becoming more present and uh, transcending some of life's day-to-day drudgeries shall we say Um, so I think that again we we should, Dave. We should put a bunch of of this music up on the site, yeah. uh, you know, and for people to be able to access. And uh, I, I think a lot of this is, is, you know, can be new to people, and some of it can be a little difficult because you've got different chord structures, and especially with Indian music, you know, uh, quarter notes and you know s- stuff that can be a little bit atonal to people. Uh, but once you start to um, just expose yourself to it, like we did in those days. Um, we uh, we found the route through to really uh, absorbing uh, what this music has to offer. And I, you know, and, you know, both you and I were deeply involved with this, but we were as deeply involved with pop music, mm-hmm. with uh, rock and roll, with, mm-hmm. uh, y- you know, whatever came along that uh, proved to have that, experiential quality. So uh, I, I think, uh, you know, hopefully people, whoever's listening out there, uh, please have a, uh, you know, an open mind to this. I think it can be very constructive uh, to to broaden horizons. And also, when we talk about what mind rolling is, uh, one of the things that it, it is for us and why we're doing this podcast is is to really talk about the cross-section of culture and consciousness, and certainly there isn't anything as powerful as music. I mean,
2: certainly, can you think of anything? I mean, no, no, really, because when you're reading a book, for instance, it can grip you and it can grab you. Uh, whether it puts you in a trance or not is is debatable, because the actual, you know, the actual business of taking in words is a left brain. It's a left brain process, and th- we're talking about a right brain phenomenon here. Now, I would say, you know, I I travel on the New York subway a lot. And it is just amazing how many people are on the subway every day with listening to music. And you don't know what they're listening to. They could be listening to Adele or Common or Nas or, or, you know, Green Day, whatever. But one thing I do know is that it isn't just escape. Because Mm, when you look at people on the subway, you see people who have put themselves in some kind of trance because it's hard. Life is hard for everyone. And it's particularly hard for, you know, if you were driving a van from Brooklyn into Manhattan, delivering sides of beef, and it's 95 degrees and 100% humidity, and that's what you do, and you get on the subway going home, you know, that music can elevate and Mm. take the strain away. And it's essentially the same process. What, what, um, what Raghu and, and, and KD did with Triloka, and I had some involvement, obviously, I, it, it was taking it sort of to another level and saying, well, this is all around the world. And you don't necessarily have to listen to any words. You know, mm. it's just, it's 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 a sound that gets to your heart. And somehow, it's not a question of relief always. It's not always relief. Sometimes it's just, it takes you to another plane. Mm-hmm. and And... You know, just as importantly
1: with what's going on in the world today, how this uh, expo- exposing oneself to music from these different parts of the world certainly has, um, certainly has an impact on people being a little, have a little bit more friendly, a little bit more compassionate with different points of view. With different cultures and so on, I think that's pretty important too. And I'm glad we, you know, we took part in that, and uh, and we, you know, we can keep that moving forward. Uh, I think is an important thing. So, um, well, we could go on and on <laughs> with this particular subject, uh, but I think we're going to close out here. Um, and uh, we we want to remind people, please do go to mindrollingpodcast.com and uh, we'd love to have all your support this is all listener supported so click on the areas in which you can support us and uh, you know do uh, take a look at uh, the audible.com offering and so on and
2: um, we'll say goodbye Dave yes au revoir until the next time which I hope is soon